You're listening to the Main Street Finance Podcast, where we take the Wall Street bull by the horns to help you achieve your financial goals. Whether it's budgeting, investing, or financial independence, we tackle the big questions in the pursuit of financial literacy. And now, your host... Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today we have a special guest. Today, we have Daniel Major from GoVX Uranium, who is going to join us today to talk about uranium mining and the potential opportunities there. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Oh, it's no problem at all. I had an invitation to talk to somebody in uranium, and I was like, uranium? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's definitely, hell yeah, let's have that conversation. <laughs> Yeah, it's not something you normally have on a Wednesday afternoon evening. No, absolutely not. You know, just take a lunch break from work and just, you know what? Look, it's really fun working today. Give me just a minute. I need to go on my lunch break and talk to a guy about some uranium. <laughs> it's the kind of thing Jeremy gets you arrested, but that's fine. <laughs> no joke. I texted that to my girlfriend. She's like, oh, how's your day going? Oh, pretty well. In 30 minutes, I got to go talk to a guy about getting some uranium. She's like, what? <laughs> No, it's it's not a joke. Not, not a joke at all. It's very serious stuff at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, before we get to the just radiating topic of discussion yeah. today, would you mind going a little bit into your background and what GoVX Uranium does? Yeah, my background is uh, I'm a mining engineer by trade. I started my career well over 30 years ago working in uh, Namibia that was then Southwest Africa. And since then, I've worked all around the world. I've worked in various parts of Africa. I've worked in Russia. Mongolia, Canada, South America. I've worked in different commodities. I was a rated equity analyst for a while, and I joined GoVX in 2012. GoVX is an African-focused uranium development company. We've got three projects, one in Niger, one in Zambia, and one in Mali. And our whole strategy is about building uranium projects to supply the feed material to the nuclear industry and taking that out of Africa as a total concept. Okay, so do y'all specialize in Africa just because that's where a lot of the uranium is, or is that just where y'all have some specialties or some history in Africa? A, a bit of both. I mean, if you looked at supply, you know, 40% of the world's supply at the moment comes out of Kazakhstan. Uh, they have some seriously good projects there. The next big supply is either out of Canada and Australia. Most of the Australian feed actually comes from a copper mine. And then if you look at Africa, the fourth and fifth largest producing countries are Africa, with Namibia and Niger as the primary ones. Our focus tends to be Africa. I mean, Africa's rich in commodities in general, whether it's gold, copper, iron ore, you know, uranium is another one. Governments tend to be resource focused. I mean, their GDPs are quite largely focused on resource development. Um, and as a result, you end up with quite you know, sensible mining law and environmental law to develop their projects. I mean, in Niger, it took us six months to permit a mining project after application to get our mining permit. If you're doing that in North America, it may take you six to 10 years to get that whole process done uh, if you actually ever achieved it. So a completely pragmatic approach, well within the normal scope. I and mean, we still do, you know, 43101 documents. We still do IFC standard because you still got to finance projects. Therefore, you still have to deal with the international bank. So there's it's not as though you're shortcutting anything. You're doing everything up to scratch. It's just the governments are a lot more pragmatic. So, yeah, we've worked in Africa a long time. Would it be fair to say that a lot less red tape? 
a lot less red tape um, and think processes are generally better focused. They're more about getting economic development in a region. I mean, I'll give you an example. If you're looking at the permitting process in Niger, where we did our environmental permit, we go and do the full IFC standard documentation. And then they have a town hall meeting. Everybody is called into one building for a week. And we literally sat and went through this document page by page, reviewed it with all of the people who had any input, whether it was villagers, whether it was NGOs, that whole process went through in a week and it was finished, done. Whereas if you did that in North America, you were putting out questionnaires, you wait weeks for them to come back, they're reviewed, go back with other questionnaires. You then have committee meetings and then you go back and have another round of questions and you just caught up in a whole bureaucratic process. Whereas Niger, a lot more focus, just get the job done. Absolutely. And there's one thing I wanted to clarify. So NGO, that's non-government organization? Yes, correct. So kind of like environmentalist groups or like regional committees of one thing or another? Yeah, you know, all sorts of different people have a, a, a position they want to take, whether it's church groups, whether it's NGOs like Oxfam or, you know, anything like that. They all have different relationships in different communities and, and want to have a say potentially. And obviously uh, something like uranium mining can be fairly emotive in some areas. So you you have to explain that it's actually very safe and well-regulated as an industry and move through that process. And there are other issues, you know, particularly things like water, dust, community issues that you have to deal with and explain how your project is going to work. And obviously, increasingly some, and as an industry, we've always had to deal with this CSR ESG, and it's now becoming an even bigger factor that's going forward. So, you know, a lot of those things we've dealt with, you know, how are you going to impact the community that's around you? And how are they going to benefit from it? Uh, Not just in the short term, but that long term. And, you know, for a long time, we've had conversations about sustainable mining, even though mines clearly by function cannot be sustainable because we mine something out of the ground that has a finite amount. But at the end of the day, the industry seeks to be provide that sustainability that when the mine actually finishes, the benefits to the community carry on. Gotcha. And so they're left with a little bit more than just a giant hole in the ground somewhere in absolutely. the outskirts of town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah big boating <laughs> like if you're lucky. But yeah, no, absolutely right. I mean, that, that's very much what we're trying to do. And because we have seen it in the past where mines closed down and look at North America, you know, there are towns there which had mines when they close, you end up with ghost towns. There's nothing left for it. Something I want to shift the conversation to a little bit. What makes uranium different from other mined commodities? Because I mean, you've got gold, silver, copper, and obviously uranium is used for something a little bit more substantial. But beyond that, is there any kind of like technical differences or investing differences between them? Let's start with the technical. I mean, I'm, I've actually worked in pulp and paper as well. And, and some people would disagree with me, but I, I'm always of the view that if you looked at it in the simplest forms, all mining is actually pretty much the same. We dig a hole in the ground in one form or the other, whether it's an open pit or an underground. The mining methodologies are generally similar. There are idiosyncrasies about it. The process route may differ to a degree. But at the end of the day, you are following very similar tracks. You're just the details are different. Uh, and the technology, I mean, even when I worked in pulp and paper, I mean, you cut a tree down, you dig a rock out of the ground, you grind up a rock to mill it, you debark and pulp up a tree, you then chemically process both of them to get the minerals out or to get the cellulose out of a tree. And then you form the final product, which has a quality requirement for it. It's the same process. 
just done differently. Um, so no, I don't think there's a lot of difference in different mining methodologies. There's a lot of detail difference, absolutely. But when you look to the big picture, once you understand the quality requirement that you need at the end, once you understand that as a producer, you work backwards through that process and the detail is you have the guys who are specialists in that process. If you look at it as a commodity, yeah, it is. It is different in, in many ways. It's probably more like, say, copper than any, because, of course, as a yellow, we're producers, we produce a yellow cake, which actually is completely useless to man or beast unless it's converted and enriched. So if you produce copper concentrate, it's not much use to anybody until somebody's actually converted it into a final copper product. So from that point of view, we produce a concentrate. The I think the biggest difference of our industry relative to anyone else is the regulation. Clearly, you know, whether you're producing a gold bar or a copper bar, anybody can pick it up and wander off down the road with it. That's not going to happen with a can of uranium. Uh, no matter how big or small that can of uranium is, we are regulated in every form, how you produce it, how you transport it, how you sell it. We only have a limited number of places that we can actually send our material as well. So not like a gold bar where, you know, I can walk down the street to the market and sell it to pretty well anybody. We can only actually send it to four places in the world for conversion. So there is a limitation on that. There are only a number of shipping lines that will actually take our product, et cetera. So there are more restrictions, but most of them are all about radiation protection, clearly. But I mean, I think on that side, most of the industry would agree and probably argue that we are probably overregulated, that the level of security and safety is to a point that it's there is almost no risk at all to anybody because they've gone way beyond the risk protection. Absolutely. And as someone that works in the banking industry, I completely understand the, hmm, maybe there's a little bit too much regulation here. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, I always find it quite amusing when I was working as an analyst and you have to go and talk to the compliance department occasionally. My view ultimately was if I got to talk to the compliance department, I probably shouldn't be having that thought because they're just going to say no. <laughs> the fact you even thought that you should talk to compliance probably meant you shouldn't be thinking about the thought in the first place. So stop doing whatever it is you're doing because it's a no. Um, so yeah. Totally if you have different. to ask, the answer is no. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> compliance only has one answer. Um, so absolutely. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the restrictions are, are pretty intense. Now, I do feel the need to leave a comment in here for the audience that when we say over-regulation, we are not discounting anyone's safety. We're not saying that, oh, there's too much regulation, we can be a little more crazy. An example I'm familiar with and work with all the time with the banking industry is we are regulated by three, four, five separate entities. So how many different people do you need to come into my bank and say, okay, these loans are good, these loans are bad, here's how you need to fix them, or hey, here's the problem with your processes. Maybe one or two is fine, but five? Uh, we're not we're not saying we're overregulated in that there's too much safety, but oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm glad you clarified that because you know the same applies with us as in our industry. There is a level of radiation that is acceptable, and what they've made sure is that we go well below that, and the systems are in place to make sure that there is absolutely no risk to anybody, which becomes onerous. But that's the way with the industry is done to make sure that people are very very safe. And that is something that we work with. And that's one of the real benefits of our industry that people do not appreciate. And that doesn't just apply to us as miners producing the yellow cake. It applies the whole way through our industry 
into conversion enrichment, nucleus energy, the breakdown of reactors at the end, everything has a massive amount of regulation on it and is monitored and reviewed by multiple bodies. So, you know, there is pretty well no risk to the public. Well, there we go. And speaking of risk to the public, let's go ahead and transfer over. I know uranium is a primary fuel for nuclear energy, nuclear power, nuclear reactors. But something I'm curious about before we really do a deep dive in nuclear energy are what other uses or customers are there? Um, pretty limited. Uh, medical isotopes is obviously one of the things uh, used in things like x-rays. There are some uses in other things like glass. Um, historically, a lot of it used to be used in glass where you get this heavy lead yellow glasses coming through. But pretty well, 99% of it's now used in nuclear energy. Oh, and military uses, of course particularly um the red-headed like, stepchild yeah well i mean other than the bomb but it also if you think of armor piston weapons use um spent uranium in them because it hardens the metal also submarines aircraft carriers all yeah that well they're all, that's, that's nuclear energy so if you look at a, an aircraft carrier that's a nuclear reactor on board which is generating the power to drive that ship around and we'll come back to that later when we talk about the growth of nuclear energy <laughs> Well, actually, well, besides talking about medical and military usage, that actually is the next thing. So before we really get into the who's it and the what's and all that other good stuff, in general, how do you feel about nuclear energy as a clean source of energy? I wouldn't be in this industry if I didn't believe in it from that point of view. I mean, nuclear energy, there was a really good report by um, the Joint Technical Committee for the EU, which really laid that out and just said, look, you know, how clean it is relative to what the renewables are. A full cycle, it produces less carbon emissions. It produces less CO and NO emissions. It is exceedingly safe from a people point of view. The number of people and fatalities is actually as low, if not lower than the renewables. And the other advantage of nuclear energy is it's there all the time. You know, 24-7, your nuclear reactor is pretty well producing power for you. You don't have to wait to ensure the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. And, you know, you don't have to have the backup batteries. It literally just produces power all the time. I mean, reactors now are running at well over 90% capacity across the world. All righty. Now, and I know this is kind of a bait question because we both know the answer, but I wanted to get it out there. Do you feel that there's a negative stigma about nuclear power? Like, I know there certainly is in the U.S., because if you take, like, France, France has built, what, 10 or 12 reactors in the last 10 years just to get more nuclear power, but yet in the U.S., if you wanted to build a single nuclear reactor, it's going to take you, as we said before, 10, 12 years of regulation and getting everything approved and actually get the thing running. Look, the obvious answer to that one is yes, because people do not have a full understanding there was a really interesting study done, I don't know if it was last year, because we've had a whole COVID blank out of mind, but see, last year or the year before where somebody actually did an energy study and they went around blindly asking questions about different energy sources and they kind of structured it. And it wasn't clear from the questions being asked which energy source they were choosing. And categorically, when they did not know the energy source, people chose nuclear energy out of the other energy choices being proposed. And by a really large margin, if I remember from the report, the other group which knew which energy source was being discussed was the other way around. And it just shows there is a mental stigma out there that people perceive nuclear energy. And, you know, Homer Simpson, 
Poseidon Adventure. You know, these are all things. Every time you see a some ninja jumping out of an airplane to save something, it's probably either <laughs> going to be a pandemic they're saving you from or it's going to be a, a nuclear blast going off somewhere. You know, but that's a complete misperception. And that's something our industry works very hard at is to really explain that actually nuclear energy is incredibly safe. You know, I think the best stat I ever heard was you will get more nuclear exposure sleeping next to somebody a mile away from a nuclear reactor than you will actually standing at the nuclear reactor itself. And that comes back to this issue of regulation. The industry has worked on a philosophy that any radiation should be avoided and therefore has worked to the lowest level. More recently, it's very clear that that actually doesn't work. And in fact, the human body can take quite considerable amounts of radiation before there's any real effect on it. So I think, you know, that is why that when we talk about the heavy degree of regulation is we have kind of overcompensated to ensure that we're as low as physically possible on emissions. If you look at, you know, the things that people talk about nuclear disasters, I think the only one that you can really call, and it was actually an aging piece of kit, then it was a man-made problem, which was Chernobyl. If you looked at Fukushima, I mean, it was hit by a massive wave. There's potentially one person who may have died from cancer from it, but the almost a thousand other people who died at Chernobyl died as a result of being moved from their houses. And you know, the statistics you look at that is that the background radiation numbers that were used to justify moving those people from their houses were lower than the background radiation that you would receive if you were living in Chicago or Seattle. So, you know, there's the idiosyncrasy of of kind of defining what is an acceptable level. They said it was higher than the normal background, therefore you had to move. Well, as I say, you know, you actually got a higher background so living in parts of the US of A. So I think, you know, that is where people need to have a better understanding of, you know, what the real risks are and how they influence you uh, going forward. And a more recent study for the from the UK said if Fukushima were to ever happen here, we would actually not bother moving anybody because it's actually more unhealthy and a greater chance of risk and death uh, by moving people than leaving them right where they are. So something I have a question on that I just thought of while you're giving that explanation. It seems that the big problem here is sort of a lack of literacy with nuclear power. So I wonder if maybe as an industry, is there some kind of website or resources that are out there for like a, hey, learn more about nuclear power? I, I don't know. I just figure like the financial industry, we have FINRA and we have all kinds of other organizations that put out content for financial literacy. I would imagine there's something similar for nuclear power. Yeah. I mean, if you go, I mean, if you want the real, you know, scientific stuff, then obviously go to people like the WNA. But I think if anyone is kind of interested, there's enough out there of guys who are pro the industry, which will actually lay down, you know, the real benefits here. If you go on to some of the Twitter, there's a really good guy out there called John Quakes has a Twitter one, talks about the uranium industry. But quite often, uh, some of the comments are in there, you know, and I think that's where we'll come on to, you know, there. And this is where the industry is going as well with the whole green energy thing and trying to show how it actually has more potential. And so there is a lot to read in. I mean, another stat for you as well, 95% of a nuclear reactor is recyclable when you want to break it down, whereas actually today you can't recycle a solar panel. So you build a solar farm and it lasts for 15 years and then you have to throw the whole solar farm in the dustbin because actually you can't recycle it. 
if you look at the amount of consumables that are consumed to build a nuclear reactor, it is 50% of what needs to be mined out of the ground for a solar farm or a wind farm. So if you're pro-mining, go renewables all in. Us miners would be happy for that. You know, we can build forever holes in the ground. But actually, you know, you look at the environmental impact, it's much smaller. You know, if you look at the land area that's needed, I mean, and this is the things you've got to think about when you your energy choices. For every square meter, a nuclear reactor will produce 10,000 megawatts of power. Uh, a wind farm will produce two, and a solar farm will produce five, not 5,000, five, and two megawatts. So, you know, again, if you're environmentally friendly, why would you want to go down a technology route that was going to require vast areas of land to be bulldozed to put in a solar farm? Doesn't make any sense. Um, and particularly here in the UK, where we're trying to reforest parts of the country, reforestation and solar farms kind of clash from a concept going forward. And so, you know, you look at it as an industry and people go, right, and I think what a lot of people don't look at as well is we think power and we just think electricity, but you've actually got to think energy. And where is the energy coming from that we use for everything that we use, whether it's heating, whether it's driving cars, all of these things, they all have a requirement for power. And this is where the strength of nuclear comes from. Because, you know, most governments now have a strategy for EV. Well, that's great, but they're still trying to convert their existing grid into a renewable grid. So you've still got to replace all of that coal and all of that gas. Forget about the additional demand that's going to come in from everybody going out and driving an EV car. And, and I've seen already in California, even here in the UK, they're now saying, please do not charge your cars during peak hours. So as everybody comes home, having just driven their car at five, six o'clock in the evening and want to plug them in to get the sunshine before they have to go and drive it in the morning when it's been dark all night, they don't want you plugging in. They want you to plug in off-peak. It's like, well, how does that work? Because it's off-peaks in the middle of the night and really hard to plug in your car for the solar band. Um, so there is a problem which is saying, all right, I actually need the power to charge up cars and, and have that system. The other one that a lot of governments are looking at are looking forward and going, right, new strategy, new technique. Let's go to hydrogen. And you say, all right, that's great. But where does the power come from to make the hydrogen? Again, you're still trying to fill up the electrical grid without adding in. There was a study out of the EU that said for the current um, hydrogen production this year, you would need just under a million hectares of ground. And where they want to be in 10 years' time, you need 8 million hectares of ground to power. And you're like, where's that going to come from? Um, that's a lot of space on top of the power that you already need to fill up the grid. So this is the full environmental benefit that the nuclear brings uh, with it. And then, you know, the other area we're now starting to see is, as you noted earlier, submarines and aircraft carriers. The technology is now taking that and looking at putting it into commercial shipping to replace the bunker oil that's being used. And uh, they reckon that if you take a, a ship nuclear from bunker, firstly, it will travel twice as fast around the world. So now you need half as many ships to ship around the, amount, the same amount, of time, potentially reducing its cost because of things you can move twice as much stuff in the same period of time. You don't have any CO2 emissions. You only need to reload them kind of every 16 years as well on top of that. Now, there was an interesting stat from Trade Tech, I think it was, who came out and said, well, if 25% of the world's fleet 
went into nuclear, that would be a bigger power capacity than the current land fleet is already using. So massive potential out here. Um, you know, the alternatives are LNG gas or hydrogen, which again, back to our hydrogen comment, got to make hydrogen <laughs> from somewhere, doesn't just appear by itself. That is a lot of stuff and a lot of reading I'm going to have to look into. I'm going to, I tell you all what, for the audience out there, I'm going to have to listen to that three or four times while I'm editing. And I'm going to find some links, some resources, and I'm going to get that put in the description below because that's just got me thinking. Because if you think, if you can reduce the amount of ships we have shipping stuff around the world by, let's say, a third, but yeah. make those ships bigger. Like if you think if something three-fourths the size of an aircraft carrier that can move twice as fast as it could before carrying three times as much stuff well how many how many ships do you really need yeah and then if you only have to refuel them every 16 years like that that just got my wheels spinning and this is the curse why you should never be an analyst guys that shows the potential out here of where we can go and and it's why you've got to look at the whole package of where nuclear is trying to go and and it's it's realized itself that it cannot just be a power energy source for the electrical grid. It has so much more potential beyond that that it, the industry is now pushing for. And then the other issue, I think, comes back to the question you asked me earlier on about perception um, and stigma. You know, people are used to looking at these big nuclear reactors, which are, I mean, are vast things. But the new way to go forward, and you see it with a lot of companies, particularly power companies in the, the US, is the small modular reactor. You know, these things, the big ones are, you know, 1,300 megawatts of power. The new ones go to down to 10 megawatts of power. And you can fit one of these on the back of a truck. So you can actually deliver it like a big Duracell battery. You plant it into basically a hole in the ground, connect it up. There are no moving parts in it. It works purely by heat convention, which most of us did at some point in our science studies at school. Um, you know, hot air rises and all of that. And uh, they're not containerized vessels. So there's no risk of, you know, a big explosion coming out of them. You can make them from founded steel. Um, so you can make them cheaper and faster and, and more of them. And many of them don't, again, need to be reloaded every 16 years. You just pop out the battery, put a new battery in its place, and uh, off you go. And I think that's the kind of time when people start to realize that actually that building down the road is actually a nuclear reactor, but I really didn't notice it. I thought it was a water station, you know, and I think that's <laughs> how we as an industry will help change that stigma that people start to realize that actually the industry is, is very safe and being near a nuclear reactor is an incredibly safe place to be. Okay, so let me let me ask you this. Let's say hypothetically the stigma for nuclear energy disappears tomorrow and we decide, okay, as a society, as a planet, as a species, we're going to work towards, you know what, nuclear is the better option. Let's go for it. Is nuclear energy a finite resource? Like, are we just going to find ourselves two, three, four hundred, a thousand years in the future in the same place we are now with, hey, we're about to run out of oil and gas. Now we got to figure out something else. If we were to switch to nuclear, would we find ourselves in the same place, you know, X amount of hundreds or thousands of years in the future? Uranium is one of the most common minerals on the planet Earth. It's all over the place, uh, different degrees. Obviously, most of them are non-commercial, but, you know, like copper, you know, we used to produce copper at much higher grades than we're producing copper at now. 
same as gold um, in the grades are dropping as we get rid of and mine out the higher quality product. So yes, there's a lot more potential for uranium going forward. Also, the industry as a whole is innovating as like all industries are doing anyway. So our ability to reuse, recycle is developing slowly. Our ability to concentrate up the product, get more out of it is definitely improving. Some of the new array actors are more efficient in their use of uranium as well going forward. So in any one sensible lifestyle and more than, no, there is no chance. I think where the industry as a whole has come to, though, is you would not, you have to balance all the energy systems together. There is no logical place why you would suddenly say, let's forego all of these wonderful renewables because they are what they are, renewables. But you need to have the blend of things going together. And so, yes, there is a lot of uranium out there and there's a lot of it for a very, very long time to come. As I say, if you look to the way the Europeans deal with it, they actually recycle uranium as well already in their reactors. So part of it's always coming back round and being reused again. So it's an industry that has been into recycling for quite a long time. I swear, you're probably the guest that's given me the most that I'm going to have to research after we get off the call. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> No, look, don't apologize. Look, I'm supposed to be the finance podcast and I'm sitting here talking about nuclear energy like that. It's really interesting, though, if you think about it. But it is important as a finance person. I mean, you are starting to see this kick in. So you've got the taxonomies, particularly in the EU. You know, Russia's got a taxonomy now. The EU's got one. North America's starting to look at it. You're now, and, and that impacts you because if you aren't seen as a sustainable energy source, it's going to cost you more for your future business whether you're a supplier of energy or you are a consumer of energy, but you want to build your business, if your energy or your product supply is not sustainable, it actually costs you more to do it. So if I wanted to build an aluminium smelter and my gut supply was all coal-fired, my finance cost is a lot higher than it would if it was from renewables and nuclear going forward. So it does have a direct financial implication. In the EU as well, you're now starting to see this fixed carbon trading you know, if you're talking, what are they now, $60 a ton on carbon? You know, if you are having to rely on non-clean energy sources and you're selling something for $60 a ton, it's doubling the price of your products, making things very expensive. Whereas the guy who can plug into the nuclear reactor and all the renewables is probably paying one. So, you know, if that same product was the same price, the guy who's got the high cost energy which is paying high carbon credits, he's out of the market until he can find something. So there is a direct relationship into the finance side of the business as well. And that's partly what's driving this whole thing forward as well. Okay. So while we're talking about the finance portion, what is it that your company, GoVX Uranium, what do you guys do differently than your peers, the other uranium miners? The biggest difference to us and our peers is we focus on Africa. I mean, there are some others like us. But we have two permitted projects. So our two projects, uh, we have three, but two of them are already permitted. And that's that benefit of being in Africa. Whereas you look at my, a lot of my peers, they are still going down those permitting stages, and particularly those North American ones, you've got a long way to go. I mean, they could be six to 10 years of permitting going forward. So for us, already permitted projects, they're large projects already. They're very straightforward um, to go forward. We are working at pushing them to final feasibility study. We're starting to look about how we're going to finance these things. One thing that's similar to all my peers is we all need a higher uranium price. And, and you know, that's pretty across the board. I mean, the uranium market's been in a pretty doldrums for a long time, but it's now 
really moving through into that bull cycle as we go forward. It's got a long way to go, but it is definitely accelerating as, as we talk about it. So that's where we position ourselves. We're a developer. And for those who look at investing in shares and in the previous cycles, the guys who've made the most money are the companies that have been able to go from being a developer to being a producer. They get that risk re-rating that comes through. You de-risk your project. You get a re-rate from that. Or in the last cycle, most of the projects that were taken out transactionally were all African projects. Why? Because people could own 100% of a project. So if you happen to be a foreign entity and wanted to own 100% of a uranium project for all its supply, you can't do that in North America. You can only own a minority stake. Whereas in, in anywhere in Africa, you can own 100% of it. So it obviously makes the transaction a little more interesting for you. That brings me to sort of my last question here. Most of this episode thus far has been talking about uranium as a source of power, nuclear energy, how clean is it, how sustainable is it? And then we've even talked about your own company. So how is it that retail investors can really get involved? Yes, I mean, let's just step back one more thing as well to explain why now's a good time to be looking at it. Last year, we've been suffering a price depression for a long time. So we've had to clear out a lot of inventory, a lot of mines shut down. So we're in a position now where last year about 185 million pounds of uranium was consumed around the world, and we only mined 120 million pounds from the ground. We got a big gap. Now, that gap was partly filled by secondary material. So it's material that was either in somebody's storeyard, like the big utilities who had too much of it and are drawing it down, or what we call some secondary material that's coming from different parts of the industry down the pipeline. If you look where we're going to be in 2030, that 60 million pounds of secondary material will have dropped to 20 million pounds. Total demand net by then will be almost 200 million pounds. And supply, unless the uranium price goes up, will actually have declined from the 125 million pounds have gone even lower because no one can justify a new mine at these levels. And we're coming to the ends of mines. So you're in a position by 2030 that we're going to have a deficit out there of something like 50 or 60 million pounds. And therein lies the, the value. At the moment, the current demand is just being met by that inventory drawdown. If you looked at the US reactors particularly, most material, 80% of materials bought under contract. 20 is in the spot market. But those contracts are unwinding. And from 2024 onwards, the US reactor companies are pretty well uncovered. They do not know where they're going to get their uranium from. And here is the whole crux of our industry at the moment. Everybody knows prices are going to go up. It has to go up because you have to incentivize new production to come in and fill the back end. So that's price benefit that's coming through. On top of that, we've had a number of financial groups forming up now, which are actually physically buying uranium and tightening the market up as well. So that kind of leverages in. So your, your investors who listen to you, number of ways you can play this. You can play the physical. So you could go and buy Yellow Cake in the UK, which just holds physical, or you can buy the new Sprott Uranium Fund, which is the old UPC that's now trading out there. So that one, you would be investing physically in the physical metal like you would on the Sprott Silver or any of these other kind of physical funds. You can buy the ETFs. There are a number of ETFs. They're slightly different in their form. You've got URA, which is um, GlobalX's uh, uranium nuclear one. It's kind of a bit of a mix and match. It's got some nuclear companies in there, not just uraniums. And then you've got the Horizon and the North Shore ETFs. So they're much more the pure plays, and you can play on those. 
then you get into the companies themselves. So, you know, if the producers, there's only two of any size that you can buy. So you wanted primary production. You've got Cameco and Kazat and Prom. And then after that, you've got the developers. So you've got companies like the Goviexes of this world, the development companies who are accelerating through and bringing their projects. And then obviously, if you like the real gambling, then go and look at the explorers that are out there. And, there's, you know, for North America, there's a lot now. I mean, that's something that's changed as an industry. Back in 2007, there were 500 listed uranium companies out there. The market cap thing was like 50 billion. We're now down to like 5 billion market cap and 50 uranium companies. So what's left are the strong ones, the the healthy ones, the ones that have got real projects and are, are ready to grow. So, you know, TSXV is loaded up with a number. Have a look at those. As I say, have a look at someone like John Quake's Twitter feed. He lists all the trading ones on a daily basis and how their shares are doing. So you can pick and choose to your heart's content to the ones you like. But obviously, I prefer people to buy GoVX. <laughs> and which uh, stock exchange are you guys on? We are on the TSXV. We are GXU. And then we're on the OTC for QB, for those in the US, on uh, GVXXF is our ticker there. <laughs> now, that was a lot of acronyms there, guys, but don't worry. I'm going to have all the details you're going to need in the description below. Just make sure, because even I got a little bit lost there, but luckily this is recorded. There we go. <laughs> all righty, Daniel, before we get out of here, do you have maybe a last second kind of mic drop thing to leave us with? Oh, geez, that's the hardest question you've asked me. Um, not really. Uh, I mean, I think we've gone through, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you buy the uranium sector, I mean, you'll see a lot on it out there. If you do some research, I say, particularly if you follow some of those Twitter feeds, it is an industry that's it's a very bullish scenario going forward. Companies like GoVX, yeah, we've got a lot of upside going from a developer to being a producer. Do your research out there. It's fascinating at the moment. And the more you dig in, the more you'll get into this other stuff that I was talking about, you know, hydrogen, all of this stuff. It gives you a better understanding of the whole green energy. Do not close your mind out to one scenario or another. That would be my greatest re request to you. And if you get a chance, read the um, Mr. Gates's book. Uh, definitely worth a read, um, which you can get on any bookshelf or any online system uh, definitely worth a read he covers a lot of the green energy in particular nuclear energy which book was that um what is it called uh if you look it up um what's his name gate the, the microsoft guy's forgotten his first name that's why i was bill saying gates. bill gates he's got a book out there at the moment uh it's something about something about power um if you look it up on um, amazon uh how to avoid a climate disaster that's the one read that this episode brought to you by my slow googling skills yeah there we go <laughs> No, but yeah, yeah. Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, definitely worth a read if you've not read it. All righty. I'll throw a link to that in the description as well. All righty, Daniel. Yeah. So if my audience wants to know more about you or wants to connect with you, learn more about GoVX, do you have any links, social media, website, anything you'd like to plug for us? The best place is go on to info at GoVX if you want to send me a message and ask any more questions. Um, the GoVX website is out there, govx.com. We do run a Twitter feed, which puts interesting stuff out on what we see as it happening in the industry. So there's plenty of different places to kind of look things up. Well, all righty. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you've given me a lot to look at. I know you've given the audience a lot to think about and go look for. So sincerely, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All righty. And for all of you, you have plenty of things that you need to go look at, things you need to read. 
and maybe open your mind a little bit and think a little bit more about nuclear energy. But while you're doing that, I will see you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Main Street Finance Podcast. Have a question on today's topics or have suggestions for future episodes? Send an email to mainstfinance at gmail.com. Sharing is caring, so if you learned something new and useful today, make sure you share with friends and family. Don't forget to like and subscribe to be notified of new episodes. For demonstrations and more examples, be sure to check out the YouTube channel. We'll see you next time.